Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears. And after spitting, touched his tongue and looked up to heaven. He sighed and said to him, Epithetia, that is be, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you. Father, we need your spirit now as we hear the proclamation of your word. Lord, move in our hearts through the lifting up of Christ that we may see Christ as holy. And Father, it will affect and change how we live, how we love, how we go forth from here and tell of what Christ has done for us, how he has had mercy on us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and tongues to give you praise. And all God's people said, Amen. you may be seated. We continue through the, the book of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 7, we'll be going through the final verses of Mark chapter 7. If you're not already there, it's on, um, at the end of page 7, verses 31 through 37. In his uh, famous book, Fellowship of the Ring, the first of the Lord of the Ring trilogies, J.R.R. Tolkien um, wrote these famous lines through the, the voice of Gandalf the wizard. All that is gold does not glitter. Not all those who wander are lost. The old that is strong does not wither. Deep roots are not reached by the frost. For those of you Lord of the Rings geeks who might be geeking out because I just quoted Lord of the Rings, I feel, for you, feel with you. Frodo is in a situation where he has been chased away from the peace and harmony of the Shire by these black riders who mean a certain death upon the, the hobbits. And Frodo comes to the prancing pony, a dark and ominous inn, and he sees this stranger in the corner known as Strider. And when he looks at him, he doesn't know whether or not he can trust this man to lead them to safety because they know as hobbits these warriors, these riders, mean almost certain death, and Frodo was paralyzed by fear. What Frodo saw was a dirty, unkept soldier ranger who wandered Middle-earth as a guide for travelers, but Frodo was not capable of seeing beyond the external to be able to see that who stood before him in the inn that night was the most valiant, valuable members of the Fellowship of the Ring, and in fact, the heir to the throne of Gondor, the future king, Aragorn. Because external measures in, to, to hobbits and to humans do not reflect the character or the integrity of the heart. 
Ocean Park, so much times we are like Frodo. Our perspectives are incapable of judging the reality that is unfolding in before us and in our midst. We don't have spiritual eyes to be able to see what God sees. And we don't have spiritual perspectives to know what God knows. We need the touch of God's grace to be able to perceive what only the ears of faith can hear and the tongue of faith can proclaim. And so what I want to do as we go into the end of Mark chapter 7, I want you to know this as we go away. Only the heart that is touched by grace can rejoice in God's promised salvation. Only the heart touched by grace can rejoice in God's promised salvation. Now what I want to do to be able to get to this point is I want to go through and I want to tell you the story of Mark chapter 7 and simply just walk through the narrative. Well, I also want to be able to tell you not just focus on this narrative, but see the big picture of what God is doing and what Mark in this um, portrait of Jesus that he is painting for us as this picture of the incredible majesty and greatness of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And then I want to say uh, three points of application to be able to, how do we take what we have learned from this text and apply it to our lives? So we start with the the, uh, end of Mark chapter 7. Sometimes when you read through the pages of Scripture, and especially of the Gospels and the travels of Jesus, we see Jesus wandering from city to city And we wonder what he's doing. It seems haphazard. It seems arbitrary. But as Tolkien's adage rings true, not all who wander are lost. Jesus always was going somewhere. Jesus was always pursuing someone. Jesus was always accomplishing a mission. Sometimes as readers, though, we don't always understand or see what Jesus is doing. We see in Mark chapter 7, this is the geography of the world, you have the areas of green were inhabited by the Jews. You see the Sea of Galilee, and you see places like Capernaum and Bethsaida uh, and, and Nazareth. We see all those places that we know in the narrative, but all of a sudden, as Jesus is having this conflict with the religious leaders, it says he goes... And as we saw last week, he goes to the northwest and he goes to places of Tyre and Sidon where he meets this Gentile woman. And then in our narrative today, it says he comes back down and he goes to the region of the Decapolis, which is southwest of the Sea of Galilee, which is also inhabited by Gentiles. And the question is, Jesus is going to these places and passing places these for a reason, but we don't need to know what that reason is. Why? Well, I believe, as we have studied this, the reason he's doing this is to expose the religious hypocrisy of the religious leaders who think they have a claim on the grace of God. They deserve God's grace because they have a very impressive religious resume and therefore they deserve the grace, the unmerited favor of God. And as... We see Jesus leaves the, 
hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders, and he goes to an unclean land, meets an unclean woman whose daughter is being possessed by an unclean spirit, and it's there that we see a heart that knows she has no claim on grace, and God gives her grace. And the first century readers would have been shocked by such uh, a, a, a claim that Mark would make. And this week we see another undeserving Gentile living in an unclean area. And then as we see this man, we realize this man is just like you and he's just like me because he needs the touch of grace in Christ. This is a man who is incapable of perceiving the significance of what is happening around him had it not been for the touch of grace that came in his life. Ocean Park, without God's amazing grace, as we sung earlier today, we stumble and fall in darkness unable to hear the voice of Christ who calls us to repent and believe, unable to understand and communicate the good news of gospel, we, like this man we're about to meet, need the grace of Jesus. We need to be touched by grace. Notice verse 32, the story begins to unfold before us, and, and it says they brought to him, Jesus, a man who was deaf and who had a speech impediment. And they begged him, they urged him, they implored him to lay his hand on him, for they knew the touch of Jesus could heal them. Whenever we read through the Gospels, we often see Jesus' path intersecting with people that are suffering in a world that is broken by sin. People who are under the yoke of a sinful world and their bodies are not right and they are not as they were designed to be. They, we see blindness and we see deafness and we see death and we see uh, people struggling and Jesus meets them. This particular man was deaf and it said he had a, a speech impediment. It was probably likely that this was not something he was born into uh, because if we see later he's able to speak and be able to speak clearly so he understood um, there may have been an accident, there may have been a disease, something happened to him where he once could hear and he once could speak, and now he cannot. He is suffering in a silent prison. In the first century, there was no American Sign Language, there was no text messaging, there was no email to be able to communicate, and some people would have looked at him and considered him stupid because he couldn't hear and he couldn't speak. Other people would have likely been grown impatient with him, but not realizing that he was struggling uh, with his condition. And then superstition people, superstitious people would have looked at him and said, surely this man is possessed by a demon or has great sin, and therefore he has this, this, this blight upon him. And when you slow down in the text and begin to put yourself in the shoes of these characters and these people that come across with Jesus, you realize this man is not able to communicate his struggles. 
He's not able to learn. He's not able to to receive the words of comfort. He's not able to communicate his fears and his frustrations. This man is suffering in a silent prison until someone brought him to Jesus. Notice verse 33 and verse 34. And taking him, the man aside, uh, Jesus, uh, from the privately, Jesus. And we notice he put his fingers in his ears. And after spitting, he touched the man's tongue. And looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed. And he said to the man, Ephatha, be opened. As we read the narratives, we see that Jesus never ministered at a safe distance from the people he came in contact with. He identified with outcasts. He touched leopards. He associated with the unclean. Jesus, the Pharisees lobbed their greatest insult on him, was a friend of sinners and tax collectors. Jesus turns away from the crowds their pressures, their demands, their uh, curiosity, and he enters this man's silent prison with the much-needed grace that this man needed. Notice you can see four things that Jesus did, four things that as 21st century minds, we think these are weird, these are strange. And this is why as we read Scripture, we don't read with 21st century perspectives. We need to read Scripture through the eyes of the author, listening it with the ears of the original audience to be able to understand the significance of the text and to be able to take that and apply that to us in a 21st century world. Notice the first thing that Jesus did. It says Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Jesus didn't simply say from a distance, I am about to heal you. Why? The man wouldn't have heard him. That's basic. Seminary, I learned that one. Spent a lot of money for stuff like that. Um, The man is deaf. And so Jesus comes up with this rudimentary sign languages, if you will, and he puts his fingers in the man's ears and he's and communicating, I am about to remove the block that is in your ears. And then it says after spitting, probably in his hand, he touches the man's tongue. Now, 21st century people are like, that's really gross. But in the first century, it was commonly believed that the saliva of holy men had healing properties. And by doing this, by uh, embracing this understanding that the people had, he is communicating to this man who has no way of speaking with him and communicating back and forth. He is speaking to him. He knows who Jesus is. He knows that Jesus is significant. And he sees Jesus touch his tongue and spit into his hand, and touch his tongue, and it communicates to this man, I am about to loosen the shackles that bind your tongue, and I'm about to do it now. Jesus drew close to this man with a heart that overflowed with compassion. It really sets a standard of how we as Jesus' followers, 
are how to interact with a world that is deaf and does not understand the words of Jesus. And then notice what Jesus does. He looks up to heaven. A few chapters earlier, when Jesus is about to break the bread, he says he looks up to heaven and blesses the bread. Why? Because just as the psalmist read uh, in Psalm 121, he says, I look, lift my eyes to the hills from where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Jesus is not drawing his strength and his power, some, some magical incandation. He's not going through a proven um, steps of healing. He is looking in unity with the Father above and a divine healing that he is about to accomplish in the life of this man who he has come in his path has intersected with. But notice, as Jesus looks up to heaven to communicate where his power comes from, what does he do? He sighs. Jesus knew the struggle and the bitterness of this man. And his heart had sympathy and compassion and for this man, and it overwhelmed him. In John chapter 11, Jesus is uh, work dealing with Mary and Martha. Uh, Lazarus has died, and Lazarus, as the text says, Jesus loved Lazarus. And he comes to the, um, to the, the, to the um, tomb, and the people are weeping. And the, the weeping is heavy because they love Lazarus, and the Lazarus is gone. And Jesus sees his friends crying and weeping, knowing full well what he's about to do. But he looks at the world that has been scarred and maimed by sin, and it grieves his heart. Brothers and sisters, what... The struggles that you have, the pain that you have, does not fall on deaf ears of heaven, but heaven weeps. God weeps for what sin has done to his beautiful creation and to his people. But Jesus is not a God who sits at a distance and does nothing. He's not a God who is at a distance or a God who is near that says, I wish I could do something. Jesus looks to the heaven for where His power comes in union with the Father and through the Spirit that is empowering Him as the very Son of God. And He looks at the man and He utters simple, ordinary words of the day. Ephatha. One word. Be opened. He doesn't have a magical word. There's not a secret spell. This is not a mystical spiritual language. It is a profoundly ordinary word that is uttered by a profoundly extraordinary individual. As Mark is pushing before us in Mark 1.1, Jesus Christ, the anointed Son of God, who does not sit idly by and watch His creation suffer, but He has entered in, He has written Himself into the story to be able to redeem us from the bondage and the sin that holds us. And I love verse 35. 
and his ears were opened. I don't like how the ESV translates it. Uh, NIV and some other translations say, and immediately and, and suddenly his ears were opened and his tongue was uh, released and he spoke plainly. The man for who so long had been locked in a silent prison was immediately infused with the glorious reverberations of the voice of Jesus that said, Be opened. So as this man is watching Jesus mutter these ordinary words, by the time he gets to the last syllable, he can not only see Jesus mouthing the words, but he can hear the voice of Jesus say, be opened. And just as Lazarus opened his eyes when Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth, and as D.A. Carson said, it was a good thing that Jesus clarified who, what dead body he said to come forth, or all the graves in Jerusalem that day would have spit out their dead. This man had been touched by the grace of Jesus, and he now could hear the voice of his Savior say, be opened. I need an amen for that, folks. I know we're quiet, and I know we need to get a little life in here. This man who had so long been locked in this prison, now his ears were unclogged. And instantly the murmurs of the crowd, the gasps of his friends and the onlookers, and the voice of Jesus could be heard with perfect clarity. And I can imagine the look on his face. He, I heard that. I heard that. This is incredible. And then, just as amazing, his tongue was loosed and his words flowed forth articulate and pronounced and enunciated. The doors of his silent prison burst forth and this desperate man escaped because Jesus unblocked his, hear, his ears and unbound his tongue. The only the grace of God can accomplish such a thing. Charles Wesley the great um, Methodist uh, revivalist when his brother went across the country. Wesley wrote over 800 hymns. And I love, I think it's verse 3, verse 4. For some reason it's skipped over. It's my favorite. Uh, Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine, my eyes diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. And what did he do? I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amen? How many have you experienced such a thing where for so many years the gospel fell on deaf ears because you did not have ears to hear? And then one day, somebody shared Jesus with you. Maybe the same way you've heard for years and years and years. And for the first time, you understood the words they were saying because the spirit of grace had touched your ears. How often do we pray, Lord, I want to share Jesus with my friend. I want to share Jesus with my neighbor. Lord, illumine their mind. Uh, open their eyes to see. Give them ears to hear the gospel, not through me, but through the power of the Spirit that causes men and women to be born again. It was the miracle of grace, God's amazing grace, that makes the blind see and finds the lost. 
But notice verse 36 and verse 37. Jesus could have been a little quirky, and we're like, what's going on? Jesus had reasons. Verse 36 and verse 37, Jesus charged them, tell no one. Jesus didn't want to be distracted from his mission. Jesus didn't want to be pulled into political ambitions. Jesus didn't want to be approached as a, as a healer. As a, Jesus had a mission, and that mission was Calvary to pay the sins of the world. But seriously, this guy's been deaf a long time, and this guy has struggled with syllable after syllable his whole life. Now he can hear and he can sing, and nothing could stand in his way to proclaim what Jesus has done. How could he not sing God's praise? This once deaf man was overcome with a cornucopia of sound. He could hear the birds in the trees nearby. He could hear the laughter of the children playing in the streets. He could hear the hallelujahs of his friends around him. He could speak clearly and he could sing loudly. And the tongue that once stuttered and stammered and lisped just to get out little tiny simple words can rattle off words like onomatopoeia or hippopotamus or supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Yes, I just got that in a sermon. Glory. But this one tongue that once stammered was now speaking for the glory of Jesus. How could he possibly be silent? Wesley again in one of his great hymns, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumph of his grace. Grace had come to this man. His silent prison was no more, and his heart overflowed with rejoicing. Osha Park, as we read this account, it should infuse our hearts with great joy. Joy because those of us who are united in Christ by faith, who say, it's not what I do, but what Christ has done, I repent of my sin, my own allegiance, my own throne, and I Believe the promises of God that Jesus died for me to take my sin and to give me his righteousness. Therefore, I can stand before Almighty God and have peace with God. Those who are in Christ by faith have been set free from the bondage of sin and death. This story is not just an incredible story about a miraculous healing. This is a big deal. But this actually, this story points to something bigger. Again, Mark is putting together a a mosaic, this picture of Jesus. And when you see mosaics, they're all little pieces of tiles that have different textures and different colors. And they're all arranged in different ways that when we step back, we see this brilliant picture. And Mark is now, he takes this interaction with Jesus and he puts it here and there's a significant, and this tile is is unique and it's different as you look at that. And in fact, this tile is evidence that Jesus is accomplishing a bigger story. In fact, Jesus is accomplishing the biggest story. Turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 35. It's on, uh, if you're in the Pew Bibles, it's on page 595. If you have your own Bible uh, and you're not really sure, it's towards the middle. Um, if you want to look in the front, there's a table of context. 
uh, go in the Old Testament, find Isaiah. Uh, it goes Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, right in the middle there. Go find the page number, and you can find it yourself. But Isaiah 35 is um, Jesus, or um, excuse me, Isaiah is in the final chapter of the first section of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is really broken up into three parts. Isaiah 35 is the last chapter in the first section. As you read through the book of Isaiah, that first portion, there is great judgment and great woe. You see, woe to you, Tyre. Woe to you, Edom. Woe to you, Israel. Woe to you, Jerusalem. God is promising His judgment is going to fall on the nations that rebel against His lordship and His kingship. And it's, it's heavy sledding as you go through. But then all of a sudden, like all the other prophets, the darkness and the gloom and the reality and the promise of judgment, there is always a flickering hope and candle of God's grace. And that's what Isaiah chapter 35 is. Andrew read it for us, but I want you to notice here that as they're, this people, they're suffering under the weight of sin. They've actually been occupied by a foreign land. They don't know whether to run and trust other nations. And Isaiah says, don't trust the, or don't trust the nations, trust the Lord. Notice in verse 3 through 5. And by the way, how often do we not are called to not trust the nations and trust the world, but trust our God who is sovereign over the nations. Notice verse 3. Strengthen weak hands. Make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have anxious heart, be strong, fear not. How many people today have come with anxious hearts, worries about what happened last week, what's going to happen this week, what's happening at work, what's happening in my relationships, what's happening in my body? Do not fear. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. He'll take care of your oppressors with the recompense of God. And here's the promise of God that we cling to. He will come and save you. God has not and will not abandon His people or forget the promises He's made. He will come and save a people who are struggling under the sin of living in a broken world. Therefore, we do not give up hope and, uh, and lose hope and fall into despair, but we trust and we live in hope knowing that the reign of God is coming But notice the evidence that he gives us as we look these promises. Check it out in verse 5 and 6. Then the eyes of the blind will be open. Here's the next one. And the ears of the what? Of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame man will leap like a deer. Some of you who have been here are thinking, hmm, I've seen these in Book of Mark. And the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. These are incredible promises, but they are not the penultimate promises. There is a greater promises that is happening. Not just uh, physical uh, deliverance, but there is a greater uh, promise that is happening that is going on in their midst. And that greater promises is the gospel, is that the best is yet to come at the end of verse 4. He, God, will come and save you. 
And as we go through Mark, Isaiah, things got bad. Jeremiah, nobody listened to Jeremiah. It got deeper and darker. And as if you've ever read through the Old Testament, you know the prophets cried out and the people murdered them and killed them. But in the midst of the darkness, when kings failed and prophets were rejected and the Spirit of God departed the temple, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, after 400 years of silence where the, uh, the floor of heaven was like concrete, a voice reverberated and said in Mark 1, 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus boldly declared the realization that the promises of God's kingdom were being realized in him. Mark puts the evidence before us when a paralyzed man is lowered through the roof and he gets up, takes his bed, and walks away for the glory of God. When a deaf man can now hear and the tongues of the mute are singing for joy. Mark actually goes out of his way to be able to communicate the tie between Mark chapter 7 and Isaiah 35. Mark chapter 7, there's a, a, a Greek word that is only used one time in the New Testament for, it's what the ESV translated speech impediment. Only time in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, the Greek version of the Old Testament, that word only shows up one time. Where do you think that is? Isaiah 35. The mute will sing for joy. Mark is putting Mark 7 and Isaiah 35, and he's linking them together and saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of God, that God is come to save you, and his name is Jesus, and he brings grace in his touch. Salvation has not only come to God's chosen people, the Jews, but has come to all the nations of the world. The long-awaited Savior that was promised to Abraham and uh, Eve in the garden, and Abraham as he looked upon the, uh, the, uh, the stars, and David as he sat in the palace, and Isaiah during the siege of Jerusalem. Grace has come in Jesus. He has opened the eyes of the blind. He has unstopped the ears of the deaf. He has made the lame leap for joy and the mute sing the salvation song of the Lord. And notice verse 10 of Isaiah 35. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Ocean Park, we can rejoice in Christ because he brings God's promised salvation uh, that alone comes through Christ. Because only the heart that is touched by grace can rejoice in God's promised salvation. So what should we do? I don't have these points. They won't come up. I ran out of time to update my, um, my uh, PowerPoints. But one, when we read this, bring your brokenness to Jesus. I love in the text it says, they brought a deaf man who had a speech impediment to Jesus. Now for you English nerds, um, no offense, uh, you want to know they. What is the antecedent of they? What is they filling in for? What's the, the noun? We don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us who brought this man to Jesus. In heaven we will know. And today heaven knows. 
But they brought this man who was broken and suffering in silent prison. They brought him to Jesus for the grace that only Jesus can bring. And as we think through the implications of a text like this, brothers and sisters, we need to go to Jesus with our brokenness. There's a lot of places the world says to turn to. Turn to yourself. Turn to your own abilities. Turn to the people around you. Do all these things. Scripture pleads with us and tells us, bring your brokenness to Jesus. Not only that, bring your broken friends and family to Jesus. Like these people, Kent Hughes said this, we should be praying for our inner life, that our character will have grace to match our profession, that we will walk our talk. That was what we are talking with the men yesterday morning. But also, we should be praying in detail for every member of our family. Bring our children, bring our spouse, bring our grandchildren, bring our brothers and sisters Christ, bring them to Jesus. He has the grace that they need. We should be praying regularly for the, our neighbors. We should have a list of missionaries and systematically pray for them. We should be praying daily for our churches, going beyond generalization, help all the believers everywhere, naming their names, lifting up their programs and their needs to the one who can give them the touch of grace that they need. Brothers and sisters, are you bringing your friends, and yourself to Jesus that they may receive grace that they need. Not only do we bring Jesus our brokenness, but Jesus changes our perspective. Sometimes we see texts like this all throughout the Gospels. It's about healing, and we think, man, Jesus can heal, and we're going to do this. And so what we try to do is we say, this is precedent, so since Jesus healed the deaf and mute, you can heal too. And they're correct. Jesus does heal the deaf and the mute. And he opens the eyes of the blind and he cures cancer. Whether that be through extraordinary means or the common grace of medicine. God is able to heal the things in, in, uh, by his grace. But as John Erickson taught it in the book that I recommended, the book of the month, God reserves the right to heal or not to heal as he sovereignly sees fit. But as a woman who has been in a wheelchair for 50 years, much longer than she ever had legs, she said, often I have prayed that the Lord would um, give me legs to walk, and he has not answered. Often I have prayed that the Lord would deliver me from pain, but he has not given me that. But he has always changed my perspective. And like this man who once was deaf and once could not speak, now he can. He can now see the Jesus who is standing in front of him, and he sees that this Jesus is who he needs. And his faith is emboldened and alive, and he sings the praise of Jesus. Sometimes when God doesn't heal us of our physical malady. He is actually using suffering to heal us of our spiritual sickness, of our spiritual deafness, of our spiritual blindness, of our spiritual misunderstanding. Because like the G like disciples who heard Jesus and, and watched Jesus, they didn't understand. But this man had the ability, now his eyes were open to the truth of the man that was standing in front of him. 
uh, the, the salvation that was promised through Isaiah the prophet. Johnny says this, God won't always change our circumstances, but if we ask him, he will step into our ch in, in to change our perspectives. He'll help us catch a glimpse of life through the eyes of faith as he sees it, and that glimpse is worth everything. And for 50 years, as Johnny has been bound to a wheelchair, her lips have been loosened to sing the praise of the God who has redeemed her from sin and death. And though he may not heal her today, he will heal her in the kingdom to come where she will dance and leap and sing for God. God is often using the suffering in our life to give us his grace, to change our perspective, to see what God is doing, which is bigger than our suffering. Bring Jesus your brokenness, change your perspective, and give Jesus the glory. I imagine the name of Jesus was always on this man's lips for the rest of his life. For the rest of his life, he praised Jesus when he heard beautiful music, when he heard a baby's laughter, when he heard the voice of his mother, he praised Jesus who gave him that ability to hear. When he heard the waves lap on the shores of Galilee, when he heard the uh, laughter, when he heard the voices and the comforts of his loved ones, he praised Jesus. When he listened to the rabbis read Isaiah 35, he said over and over again, this is what Jesus has done for me. He brought me the grace that I need. Don't waste your suffering. Don't waste your lives. Don't waste your disappointments. Go to Jesus for the grace that you need. He has conquered sin and death. His kingdom is already, but there is much, much more to come because only the heart that is touched by grace can rejoice in God's promised salvation.